Our Old Testament reading tonight, our sermon text, is Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, we'll be reading the whole chapter. This is God's holy word, brothers and sisters. Let's pay close attention to it. Now it came to pass, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he'd done to Jericho and its king, so he'd done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent Ahahim, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, In the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there's been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened, while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities, and all the people returned to the camp, to Joshua and Makeda, in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. And Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. 
And they did so, and brought up those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. On that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day, and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon, and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, all its cities, and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to Tabir, and they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he'd done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he'd done also to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we ask that you would show us your power to save, that you'd show us your mercies, that we would see them afresh, rest in them once again, or rejoice in you, our God, once again, and draw strength and confidence from you. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. If we were filming the book of Joshua, 
I think we would have had a lot of build-up moments in the plot so far, many exciting, dramatic battles so far. But chapter 10, where we, uh, where we are tonight, I think would be the big, climactic battle scene. The battles so far have been important and impressive, right? Jericho, you don't think it'd be hard to, pass, uh, to surpass what was done there, the walls collapsing at God's divine command, or then the ambush and annihilation of Ai. In each of these, in each of these battles that we've seen, it has been clear uh, that the Lord is the warrior of Israel. He's the decisive factor. Uh, if he fights for Israel, Israel cannot lose. But here in chapter 10, it's made even more clear, if that's possible, made even more clear than it's already been. The Lord, as Israel's hero, shows up here in even greater uh, glory and, and, and even more explicitness and obviousness as the one who is accomplishing this victory. We get this glorious picture here of how the Lord fights for his people and gives them a complete, a total victory over their enemies here in this southern part of, of the promised land. So we see here God as warrior. That's not a, that's not a popular uh, conception of God today, I would think. It's not a, a popular doctrine. You're more likely to go and find a book at the local Christian bookstore, if it still existed, I suppose, uh, about how loving God is and gentle God is and how gracious he is, how tenderly he cares for sinners and sufferers. And, and those things are wonderful, true, and precious. We need to study those things, uh, these, these attributes of our God. We should talk much about these aspects of who God is. They're deeply true and they're deeply comforting, too. We need those doctrines. But we also, at the same time, need to hold on to God as the Almighty One, the warrior who fights for His people, the King who defends them. We can't lose sight of that. It's it's not by accident that both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed start with the words, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. That's the adjective the early church fathers choose to put with God's name here. Something about God's omnipotence, His power, His unrivaled authority and might was so important to those first centuries of the church, that they put it right there in the first line of the great creeds of the faith. It's not just because God's might is true, that it's an accurate doctrinal point that he is almighty. They, they did this. They, they put it in the creed because it's true and because it's so necessary. It was so necessary for them to trust that God was almighty. Brothers and sisters, we so badly need God to be our almighty defender and warrior. We need a doctrine of the God who fights for us, defends us. We're, we're surrounded by threats and dangers in the Christian life. Satan is at war with us. We're under the constant pressures of temptation to sin, the indwelling sin, habits of sin that we have. We are under a thousand pounds of pressure from the world to conform to it and its way of thinking and living. We need a defender. And then, of course, there's, at the end, death itself, the last great enemy. Who will fight for us against all these things, which are so much more powerful than, than we are? The Lord himself. That's what this text here in Joshua 10 is all about. 
It's a glorious display of the power of God as he fights on behalf of his people. It teaches us, teaches you and me, that the Lord our God fights for us. It's a precious truth. So let's, let's dive into the text now together. We began by looking at the Lord's almighty power. This is our first point. The Lord's almighty power in verses 1 through 15. As chapter 10 begins here in the narrative, we, we hear something that's, that's familiar to us because back in chapter 9, we heard something very similar, and we're going to see it again in chapter 11. Each of these uh, chapters, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, starts with an account of a king who's getting scared because he's hearing about what God has done through Israel. A king hears about what Israel's done to her enemies, and the king gets scared and tries to find a way of escape. Back in chapter 9, the king of Gibeon said, hey, let's, uh, the Gibeonites said, let's, um, let's, let's not try to fight Israel. We don't stand a chance. Let's try to trick them into a treaty. And, and they're successful. So then the king here, the king of Jerusalem, hears about what the Gibeonites did back in chapter 9. And he is even, even more scared. Because uh, Gibeon's not, um, not a small city. Gibeon's a major city. It's a strong city. Its people were uh, known as, as warriors. So if they didn't even try to put up a fight against Israel, how, how much should the king of Jerusalem be scared? So he makes a, a quick alliance with four other kings in the region. He figures if we, can, if we can pull our forces together, maybe we can withstand the Israelites. So these five kings come together. They march on Gibeon. Maybe if they can wipe out Gibeon before Joshua has a chance to get down there and, uh, and save Gibeon, maybe they can coerce the people back onto their side, some of the Gibeonites, and form a, a more united, even stronger front against Joshua. So the Gibeonites send a message for help as quickly as they can to Israel, who is camped about 15 miles north of where Gibeon is, at Gilgal. So Joshua gets the message at Gilgal. Uh, Gibeon needs us, so they, they respond immediately. He musters the troops. They march down some 15 or more miles, and they march all night long. Then, in verse 8, as the people march to the night, Joshua hears those wonderful words. It's always a, a sign in the book of Joshua uh, uh, that salvation is coming uh, when the word of the Lord comes. The Lord speaks. And you hear that and you know the Lord is coming with his salvation for Israel. So God comes in verse 8 and he speaks to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. God keeps on coming to Joshua. He's told him throughout this book, don't be afraid, be strong and courageous. Joshua, back in chapter 9, has made a mistake in his leadership, relying on himself instead of on the Lord, wound up with this treaty that he can't revoke with the Gibeonites. But the Lord once again comes to him and reassures him, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed or discouraged. Go, I've given them into your hand. He, he, he promises him that the victory is totally guaranteed. No doubt at all about how this fight's going to go. So Joshua's courage is strengthened as he leads the men in that march through the night. And then they finally reach Gibeon. And they see the five Amorite kings there. 
besieging the city. But these kings are taken by surprise. They look up and they see the armies of Israel sweeping towards them. Right? It's like one of those moments in one of those epic battle movies as the, 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 the troops come in and save the day. But, but all of this drama here, all the heroics that we could uh, imagine are going on in this scene aren't, aren't focused on Joshua. The narrative's not focused on him and the Israelites. It, it then is intently focused on God himself. He is, the, he is the warrior here, not Joshua. Even as Israel attacks the Amorites, it's the Lord who's fighting. Look at verse 10. So the Lord routed them, the Amorites, before Israel. The Lord killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. It's not Israel who's doing these things. It, it, it is Israel, but it's the Lord through Israel and fighting on behalf of Israel. He is the, the, the main actor here who's destroying the enemy. And it's a completely one-sided fight. There's no chance at all, is there? Verse 11 tells us that the Lord is, is raining down hailstones from heaven. Right? What, a, what, a, what a scene to have to, to imagine that, just to see the, the Amorites fleeing and hailstones coming down from heaven in judgment upon them. How terrified they must have been. This victory is entirely the Lord's. He is the great warrior. I said earlier that we can neglect this doctrine of God's might and his power, especially as a warrior, as he defends his people and brings judgment on his and their enemies. We forget that Christ, as the perfect revelation of God, is also this uh, king of love and grace and our mighty warrior and defender. We We need both aspects of his character, brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote about the ideal of knighthood in the Middle Ages, which is an impossible ideal, but, but the way Lewis paints the picture, he's, he's really showing us something that's true of, of God. And Lewis says this, The knight is a man of blood and iron, a man familiar with the sight of smashed faces and the ragged stumps of lopped off limbs. He's also a demure, almost a maiden-like guest in hall, a gentle modest, unobtrusive man. He's not a compromise or happy mean between ferocity and meekness. He is fierce to the end and meek to the end. Right? That is an ideal, right? And, and it's really a reflection of God's character. Not that he's somewhere between the mighty warrior and the tender father, but that he is both to the greatest possible degree. In this text, we see God loving his people with an everlasting love. Right? Our, we have a hymn that calls God most tender, and he comes and he fights on behalf of his people. It's a wonderful thing. But as awesome as the display this is of God's power and might as he fights for his people, what happens next in the text is, is even more glorious and wonderful. Joshua sees how the fight's going. The, they're, they're making a total sweep of the enemy. The people are, 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 are routing the enemy. And one day they are breaking the power of not one, but five of the Amorite kings. And Joshua sees how this is going, and he doesn't want to run out of time to finish the battle. So he speaks to the Lord. The text tells us he speaks in the sight of all Israel. They can all see him. Uh, many of them can hear him, hear what he's saying. And he prays that the sun and moon would stand still in the sky. You can imagine uh, he prays this, and then the Amorites start to notice 
they hear about this, they start to notice the sun's not going down. This battle, our only hope was getting out of here and hiding somewhere in the hills after dark, but the sun's not going down. This day won't end. This day of God's judgment on us won't end. Not until the Israelites have completely crushed the Amorites does God allow the sun to set. Now, as people read this text, all kinds of questions come up, right? How could God actually stop the sun in the sky, especially when we know what we know about how the earth is, is uh, rotating? And, and how could, could God actually suspend the earth's rotation and the moon and its orbit? Right? The earth spins at about 1,000 miles per hour. If you slam on the brakes at 1,000 miles per hour, everything's just going to fly apart. Could God really do this? But brothers and sisters, for the Almighty God, it's easier for Him to do this than it is for you and I to stop a spinning top. He's the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything. It's by His command, it's all held together as easy for Him, by His command, to suspend, to halt the whole operation without a single molecule being put out of place. If He wants to make the sun stand still for a whole day, of course He can. The Children's Catechism puts it so well. Can God do all things? Yes, God can do all His holy will. It's a wonderful thing. It's easy for us to forget that this is who we're dealing with, right? When we come to the Lord in our relationship with Him, we, we can forget His power. We can become familiar with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is His power. He's able to suspend the motion of the cosmos. But what I really want to see here, what we should focus on here, even more than this, is, is the purpose to which God puts this power. Right, the sheer power, it would just be terrifying. But, but here we see the Lord of heaven and earth does this so that he might save his people. He's doing it to work their salvation and give them their inheritance. His power is always pursuing this purpose that he'll save his people. His, his power, this, this, this omnipotence, right, total power, is for the sake of our salvation. So the lesson for us is that His power cannot fail to secure my salvation. This is my God who sworn Himself to keep me for glory. He cannot fail. And we're going to look at that in more detail, especially in the third point. But, but here I want to look now, briefly, what secures this power on behalf of God's people? What, what is it that God has this power? What is it that secures this power, that, 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 that uh, calls on God to, to use this power on behalf of his people? And what we see here is that it's, it's uh, the words of Joshua. Joshua here in the text asks God to do this, and he does. In fact, we might say he tells God to do this, it's phrased more as a more as a more as more as speaking a command than asking a request. And the marvel here, as the narrator points out in uh, in, in 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 verses thirteen to fourteen, is that God listens to the voice of a man here. That God heeds what Joshua says here, and and it says there's been no day like it before or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. It's the leader of Israel calling on the Lord that secures the Lord's favor for his people. The Lord loves Joshua. His favor rests on Joshua. That's been a theme throughout the book, that God, uh, God is 
God favors this one. Joshua is a mediator of sorts between God and the people. So God graciously condescends to allow Joshua to speak to him here, even tell him what he would like to do. It's an astounding thing. And, and of course, this points us to the mediator between God and man, who is so much greater than Joshua. This points us to what, what Jesus does. Right? He, he is our mediator who is always interceding for us, not just at one moment, but the one who's continually, Hebrews says, continually making intercession for us, always praying for us. If Joshua's request to God brought about the sun standing still for the sake of Israel's salvation, what will the Lord Jesus' prayer on our behalf accomplish for us? The Father always listens to the Son, every request He makes for us. And, and what's wonderful about this is that it extends even further. It's not, only, it's not only our Lord Jesus who has the Father's ear and gets an audience with Him. It's not just a favored few. It's for all those who are in Christ. Not, not just the Son, but those who are sons in the Son, adopted in the Son. Jesus says in John sixteen twenty three, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I, uh, he will give it to you. Or Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The Lord of heaven, the Almighty One, stands ready to hear all who come to him in his Son. Request his saving help. He is willing, able, to hear, he loves to hear, and he's not just a sympathetic ear, but he's the one who can actually do something about it. He can do everything that you and I need done. So, brothers and sisters, as we round out verses 1 through 15 here, what we see is that God's almighty power, which his Son has secured for us for our salvation, is not just a dusty doctrine that, that, that we can study. It's a vital thing for our daily lives. That, that God is able to do everything that I need done in my life in, in, to, to progress in holiness, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight of the faith. On our own, we cannot win a single victory. But the Lord is the one who strengthens us and fights for us. So that's what we see here of God's almighty power. But then we go on and we see how this almighty power uh, uh, accomplishes salvation for Israel. And we see two aspects to that. The first, our second point, is the enemy's inevitable defeat. And we're looking here at verses 16 to 27. The enemy's inevitable defeat. So the Amorites are scattering. Um, it's a day of slaughter that won't end for them. Verses 16 to 27 show us that the five kings who had joined together all their forces against Israel run away and hide in a cave. They realize everything's lost, so they run away to a cave in Makeda. But they're found, of course, and Joshua has them trapped in that cave until he can deal with them, until the battle's over. So he and his men leave the cave with some guards, and they pursue the rest of the Amorites. Uh, they finish uh, the battle with them, and then they return to the cave where these kings are held. And, and what happens next here at this cave is really fascinating. It's, 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 a, it's a graphic and, and brutal scene in many ways. But at, at the same time, I want you to see the preciousness of the truth for us here. So the kings are brought out 
Uh, they're forced to lie on the ground. Joshua calls the chiefs of his men of war to come place their feet on the necks of these kings. And then he says to his men in verse 25, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Imagine the memory of this, which would have stuck with those Israelite captains. Right? What that felt like. To have their enemies underfoot. And Joshua says to them, this is what God will do to all those who stand against you. Then the kings are uh, killed, hanged on these trees, made a curse, completely devoted to destruction, taken and thrown into the cave, and buried there. The stones rolled in front of the cave. What's precious about this here? What, 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 what do we learn here? A couple implications. First, what we're seeing here is not just one nation defeating another nation in some territorial dispute. Uh, what's happening here is that the seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent. All right, this, is, this is the gospel. This is back in Genesis 3.15, the proto-Euangelion, the first promise of the gospel, where God promised Eve that her offspring would one day crush the head of the serpent. That promise, back in Genesis 3.15, started a war that runs through all the pages of Scripture and, and doesn't end until Christ's final return. We can trace that battle and uh, all uh, that, that war all through the Old Testament as the people of God fight with the enemies of God. And this battle here in Joshua 10 is, is part of that war. And here, what do we see at the end of this great battle? We see God's people, the seed of the woman, the godly line, crushing underfoot her enemies. It's another sign of the, uh, the, the final judgment of God against sin breaking in. It's pointing us to, to what God's going to do once and for all. It's also pointing us to what Christ comes, uh, to what Christ accomplishes when, when he comes. We see Christ in his conflict with Satan in the wilderness, defeating him in the, in the wilderness. We see him uh, uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, forgiving sins, crushing, these, crushing sin and the effects of sin. We see it as he dies, as he rises again, as, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus must reign until all his enemies have been placed under his feet, till they're all crushed by the Son of Man. We see in Christ that they have been crushed, and they will finally be crushed. And this here in Joshua 10 is a picture of that, that victory. So brothers and sisters, as we look at these verses, at this picture here of, uh, of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent... They're pointing us to the Lord Jesus himself, who has his foot, even as those kings did, has his foot on the serpent's head. But there's a second implication here I'd like us to see. It's not just that the great hero has his feet on the necks of the enemy. Joshua himself is not standing on the necks of the Amorite kings. His men are. He's telling them, this is how your battles will ultimately end. God is going to give you this kind of victory, but God's also going to give you a part in it, and he's going to give you the honor of, of victory. God here doesn't just place his, uh, people's enemies under uh, Joshua's feet. He, he, he has the representatives of Israel do it. And we see here as principle that we also see come out in the New Testament, that not only does Christ crush his enemies, but he, he grants to his people by his power 
that they may crush their enemies too. We read this explicitly in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a precious thing, isn't it, that God is going to do it, but he'll put him under our feet. Satan's defeat is inevitable. What a precious, precious reminder. Not only is this, do we see here a picture of the final defeat of, of our great enemy, the devil, we also see the final defeat of our sin. And what a comfort, right? Think of those words in, in Romans six fourteen: Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What are, the, what are the sins that we wrestle with? The things that feel like so often they do have dominion over us. The habits we can't seem to break. The, 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 the holiness we cannot seem to attain that we so desire to have. Whatever they might be, one day they're going to lie in the dust, crushed under our feet because of God's power. It's glorious hope. And, and even death itself. Not just Satan and sin, but even death itself, the final enemy, will be crushed under Christ's feet and under the feet of his people. Paul, as we read earlier, writes of this in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is the inevitable end of all the enemies of God's people, of, of our enemies. Sin, Satan, death itself. This is, this is their end. That Christ, who's crushed the serpent's head, like Joshua here, he, we also will place our feet on our enemies in their defeat. God promises us this is how the war is going to end. So even as Joshua says to the captains here, do not fear or be discouraged or dismayed in the conflict with these things. It's a wonderful promise. There's another half to the coin. Though, not only are we getting a promise here of Israel's enemies being defeated, but we're seeing this promise that God is guaranteeing their victory, that their victory is inevitable too. And that's our third point. See this as the chapter continues uh, in verses 28 through 43. The inevitable defeat of God's enemies and Israel's inevitable victory. Now, now, we read this earlier, verses 28 through 43, is this, this catalog, this, this rapid-fire list of how Israel overwhelms and defeats all their enemies in the southern part of Canaan. One after the other, they're falling like dominoes, the, the major defensive cities of the south part of the land. They're being devoted to destruction. No one can stand in their path. The chapter, the, the narrator makes a point of listing them all out, one after the other, to show how inevitable this is. And the chapter ends with this summary in verses 40 through 42. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and, and their land Joshua took at one time. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So we see there's complete victory. No enemies left here in the southern part of the land. God has given them this, this glorious victory through this campaign here in the south. But what I want to see here is, is what God's power here is achieving for Israel. 
It's not just achieving their enemy's defeat. It's achieving their inheritance. It's securing their inheritance of the promised land. Verses 40 to 42 bring this into focus. Joshua conquered all the land. These kings and their land, Joshua took at one time. See, that's the, that's the goal here. It's that God would bring his people into the promised land where they might have a wonderful inheritance dwelling with him. So the point is that this almighty power of God, which defeats his and our enemies, which we've seen, is so that we might have a secure inheritance with him. A land where we're in covenant fellowship with him. So I want to look at two assurances that we can draw from this. The almighty power of God first has already secured this for us. Right, we see Christ as, as he's on the cross. Uh, uh, he is the one securing our promised land for us definitively by his almighty power. Luke twenty three forty three. Christ says to the thief on the cross beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Christ on the cross and in his resurrection is opening paradise, opening the heavenly promised land, securing it for his people. We have it in the words of Jesus loves me. This I know. The, the second verse there, I think it is, says, Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. It's done. It's secure. Christ has done it. He's opened the promised land for all his people. He's secured their inheritance. Nothing can take it away. But not only has he secured the inheritance, he's secured us by his power for that inheritance. He's keeping us for that inheritance, right? He says this, Peter says this over in 1 Peter. He says, we've been born again to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, you, by God's power, are being kept, guarded, for an inheritance ready to be revealed in the last time. It's a glorious promise. We are kept secure by God's power for that inheritance. So Joshua 10 here is showing us that, that God's power is at work to bring us into this glorious heavenly inheritance. That Christ, by his death and resurrection, is the one who's done this for us, given us his spirit, that this power is at work in us so that we might attain these things, brothers and sisters. And so, in closing, where, where do we need God to work in us? by his almighty power, right? We've been talking about how powerful he is, the purpose of his power to defeat our enemies and bring us into the glorious heavenly inheritance. But where specifically, right? We're not going to see on the, on the grand dramatic stage of, of battle like Israel does here. It's going to be in the trenches of everyday life that we see this worked out. Where do we need to ask God to be doing these things for us? Right, this, is gonna, this is going to be worked out in our struggle for holiness, Right, in our struggle against sin in places like our marriages and in, in our uh, raising our children or, or our relationship with, with parents, that, that God might be giving us his almighty power at work in those situations or in our, in our work or, or, or the sins that we are struggling against, particularly what, what temptations are we struggling with. God has almighty power for his people to keep them from these things, guard them and bring them to the heavenly inheritance. And, and brothers and sisters, even death itself, the last enemy is not stronger. God has won the victory. By his almighty power, he will guard and keep us all the way to our rest in the heavenly promised land. So let us seek his aid. Let us seek his help 
for Christ's sake. Let's pray together.